Welcome to Behind the Job Title Podcast. Ever wanted to know what makes someone at work tick? Why does someone desire to be the best at what they do? Or how does a colleague spend time away from the office or wherever their place of work is? I, Damien Swaby, invite industry professionals to discuss and celebrate their careers, lives and future. All of this and more on Behind the Job Title Podcast. Danny, how are you today? I'm really good, Damien. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast. Nice one. Tell us a bit about what your podcast is about. Yeah, thanks, uh, Damien. So it's called Sondership. Uh, it's a word I made up. So uh, I got the URL. I got all the search terms. It's brilliant. Make up your own word if you can. But obviously, slightly more difficult for people to remember it and understand what it is. And um, so the Sondership podcast is an opportunity to hear inspiring stories from people with purpose. So I'm trying to find people who are trying to do good in the world, try and try and make the world a slightly better place and, and hear, hear their stories, their journeys. And the intention really was not to find a superstar who was just born gifted and uh, changed the world. Um, but more realistically, they are normal human beings like you and I, who uh, thought, oh, I don't, I think, I think, that's wrong or I think that could be better what can I do about it and hearing their journey of the things that they've done to try and just shift the dial a tiny bit and the setbacks and the crisis of confidence and so on so that was the the opportunity really to share some stories be inspiring uh, but also realize that the people who are making a difference are you and they are me that's that's the key is they're real people um, and just to say that the word Sonder, so the word Sonder it was coined by a, a guy called John Koenig in his Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And um, it means it's that moment, this moment when you realize that um, everyone's lives are as vivid and complex as your own. So it's that point where you kind of look at people in a slightly different way and start, you know, shift the focus from yourself. Because we all live our lives mm. in ourselves, don't we? Through our eyes, through our emotions, through our experiences. And it's when you shift your focus onto someone else and you realize, oh, those people are living their lives through their eyes and through their feelings and emotions as well. And that's what, so that's what we call sonder. And sondership is it's really taking people who've seen that in others and said, now, how can I, how can I improve things for everyone? That sounds amazing. I love the sound of that podcast. And I must ask what makes a CIO decide to start a podcast like this? <laughs> so, um, uh, partly, partly because I wanted something to do. So, uh, last, last year, I had a lot of spare energy and time as, as a lot of us did during the pandemic. And um, I'd done a brilliant course called the ALT MBA, A-L-T MBA, um, devised by Seth Godin. <clears throat> and, and throughout that, a lot of the examples in the case studies were, let's say you want to set up a project like a podcast, for example. And it kept, it kept saying podcast, podcast, podcast. And by the end of it, I'm like, I want to do a podcast. I don't know why. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just sat down and said, I'm going to create a podcast. I don't know what it's for. I don't know who it's for. I don't know what it's about. I don't know the change, but I got a day to figure it out and put it on a sheet of A4 and then get out there and test it. And then within about eight weeks, it was fully launched, fully live, name, branded, website, the lot. Um, and the reason for the particular topic is also, yes, I'm a CIO. I work in technology, 
and digital and data, but I'm also like to think that I have purpose in what I do. And it's not just, I go to do a job to make money, to pay the bills, you know, there's purpose. And I want to have a positive outcome for other people. And I kind of wanted to shift the, shift the dial a bit away from technology and, and get a little bit of focus just on the, on the people driven purpose led approach. Um, so that those are probably the two reasons why the, the podcast came together. And it, so now, hopefully, when people come across me, they don't just see, oh, he's, he's a technologist. It's like, oh, he's the guy with the podcast who has inspiring stories from people with purpose. Excellent. Really, really good. I really enjoy that. And being a CIO, what made you want to become a CIO? And how did your journey start towards that career? Well, I, um, I've always loved technology right from when Father Christmas brought me a BBC micro computer in the late 80s or mid 80s. And, um, and I wasn't, you know, a coder, I wasn't particularly technical. But what I really loved about technology is how it can be used to improve people's everyday and people's lives. Um, I, I remember a friend who was learning typewriting skills and she had a typewriter and I'm like, but we've got this computer. And it was, it was an Amiga or so, you know, it was, it was, it was before the windows PCs. And she's like, no, I'd rather learn on the uh, typewriter because it's, you know, it's more, uh, there's more force feedback, right? It's more, it's more tactile. And I'm thinking, does she not realize that's the future? Right. And, and so that, that realization of the technology of, the direction of travel, how it can improve people. I've always had that. So even at school, I was doing stuff with computer networks and um, really about managing how the school was using technology and how the kids could gain pleasure from interacting with technology rather than building a network and coding servers, right? Um, and and so I decided I definitely did not want to work in technology. That was, a, that was it. I definitely wasn't going to work in technology because I enjoyed it. So why would I go and want to work in something I enjoyed? Because then it would ruin it, wouldn't it? It would become my job. <laughs> oh, how boring is that? Um, and so I did a degree in chemical engineering instead, uh, which uh, I found really boring. So I thought, you know what? I'll just, I'll just find a career that's easy. Technology, I understand that. I enjoy it. I'll just do that. And from that point on, of course, I realized that your career should be something you enjoy mm. and shouldn't be that job, shouldn't be that work. Um, and I started. I started um, with uh, John Lewis Partnership, which is a, a British uh, retail, very big, established retail chain, um, and spent the best part of nine years basically trying to do every job in technology going until I found my niche. Um, and I, I was a bit of a programmer and a bit of an analyst and a bit of a project manager, but I eventually found my niche um, in the second half of that job, which was specifically was infrastructure project management. And I found myself in a place where I got it. I understood it. I was comfortable with it. And I did it better than most other people did. Loads more people understood the project management. Loads more people understood the business. Loads more people understood the technology. But when it was bringing all those together and how the infrastructure can be delivered to benefit the business, then I found myself a little bit more in a unique position. And so followed a path around infrastructure management for a number of years before I became CIO. Nine years at John Lewis, that's amazing. Um, a huge brand known around the country without a shadow of a doubt. Would you say those nine years helped shape you professionally and potentially personally because that's the longest period of time you stayed in a job? 
Yeah. Um, uh, in, in every possible way. I, I mean, I absolutely loved, uh, the partnership, the, the, there are, there are, um, employee owned business. They're the oldest employee old business. They've got 80,000 employees who share in the profits of the business and they have a democratic structures. And, um, I was on their various councils and I ran clubs and societies. Um, I even had an employer after John Lewis once say to me, you know, you're, you're kind of a bit too focused on, on people and what they want. You should work for a cooperative. <laughs> I'm like, I did for 10 years. <laughs> I did work for a cooperative. Um, so I'm like, I, I'm not afraid to ask people what they think because they might give me their opinion and then I've got to act on it. It's like, that's the whole point. Um, but also John Lewis had really long, um, uh, depth, serious depth of experience in technology, a very structured mainframe organization. So I learned the kind of principles, the disciplines, the fundamentals of technology, a good business, great people. And to be honest, nine years, not very long at John Lewis. Most okay. people were knocking out 20, 25 plus years wow. there. So even at nine years, I was, I was still quite new, relatively speaking. Uh, I wasn't a fully part of the establishment by that point. So when you work for a charity, for example, what are the differences for you personally and professionally when working for a charity compared to working for someone like John Lewis? It's a, it's a really good question because people ask me that question now that I work in higher education and they say, how does that compare to working to a charity? And I go, it's pretty much the same. But your question, you know, how does working with a charity differ to work for a retailer? I mean, it couldn't be more different, really. Um, partly, I mean, part of it was that John Lewis in particular, because it was such an established and very large organization, um, would recruit graduates, you know, at my time, it was 20, 25 grad IT grads every year. And uh, so you can imagine, and, and the technology department was probably 800 people across the whole business. So it's going to be a different type of place, different, different type of people, different depth of experience, very focused on people obviously because it's a, a cooperative but also on retail on on commercial on on making sure we can we can pay the bills um so it, it was very it was very focused it was very business it was it was about the bottom line right how big is my bonus going to be this year is it going to be 20 percent? is it going to be 25 percent? it's going to be one percent um when you shift to and 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 journalists was very driven by purpose in the sense that they cared about the farmers and they cared about, you know, their, their partners, the, the people who work there. So you go into a charity and then it's really, it's not about business. It's not about um, customers in that sense. It's not about making a profit. Although partly it is because you need to make enough money to stay alive. Otherwise you, you cease to exist. But the focus was very different and the focus was very much driven. I, I worked for Auntie Nolan. It was a blood cancer. It is a blood cancer charity, stem cell register. And um, it, it just, you know, patient driven. It's all about there is a patient somewhere in the world who needs a stem cell transplant. How are we going to find them the best possible match? And that's the focus of the business, not how can we improve our bottom line? It sounds like you prefer that focus because you're actually helping people in a very different way and saving lives am i right by saying definitely um there is an element of come on guys you need to get a little bit more commercial here because we got to be we got to we got to make enough money so that we can invest in more um in, in more science in more research in more support for patients and so on so there's there's an element of uh 
let's be a bit more commercial and definitely that charity and many other charities are becoming more um commercial so so actually my favorite place not that i've ever worked for one but my favorite place is that sweet spot in the middle which is a social enterprise so social enterprise is kind of a charity that's allowed to make a profit it's probably one way to look at it or it's a business but it actually does care so think like a b corp um and i think that's the best of both worlds because if an organization is just there to um, not necessarily treat its employees particularly well, not have a positive impact on the environment or on society and potentially have a negative impact on those, they're not going to survive very long, those organizations, because people aren't going to want to buy from them. People are going to want to work for them. People aren't going to want to invest in them. So those commercial organizations have got to find their conscience because they just cannot survive the next few decades. Charities also are going to struggle to survive on living on handouts, mm. right? It just, it just, you know, we, we see, we've seen what happened over the last few years with, with, with the economy, with pandemic and with all sorts of things, you know, people want to give, but then people can't afford to give, but people want to buy from an organization that is sustainable or is purposeful or donates part of its profits to a cause, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that B Corp social enterprise bit in the middle and that's a real sweet spot. And, and I think as commercial organizations develop a conscience and as uh, charities become more commercial, they kind of meet in the middle somewhere. And, and that not that a great place to work where you're working for an organization that's, yeah, it's making money, you're, you're getting paid, you're maybe taking home a bonus, but actually it's not all the money's going into the pockets of uh, shareholders and, and uh, you know, rich, rich executives. So you've got a, a rich um, history in volunteering also. It seems like you want to pass on information and help people be the best they can possibly be. Tell us about your volunteering experience with Women in Te- Technology Mentoring Programme. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm a big shout out to Kevin Dainty, who uh, set up the Read Women in Technology Mentoring Programme. He's doing really, really well with that. And um I'm really quite focused. So I'm, I'm a, this is radio, right? So you can't see me. Uh, if you were to see me, you would see a uh, well-spoken, so you can hear that hopefully, um, white British male, okay? Privately school, educated, university educated, pretty much, you know, um, uh, dripping in privilege is probably the best way to put that. But actually my dad was born in egypt my mom was born in tunisia um i've got no british dna in me whatsoever uh um i I, i'm brought up uh in a a jewish household not particularly religious but but culturally um so actually you know minority ethnic I've, i've got this kind of two sides to that coin and and my you know my my parents spent time in in refugee camps as well so it's it's this kind of drive for diversity comes partly from paying it forward right my parents came to this country they were really hard they they put everything they had into uh my brother and my education and as a result we, we've had a huge amount of privilege as a result of that um but i also have been able lucky enough to experience the kind of richness and diversity of uh different upbringings family food culture 
and understand that that makes a difference. That makes you think differently. That makes you act differently. Um, and and we do not need monotone in decision making. We don't need um, everyone looking and thinking and being brought up the same in our organisation. So, very long winded way of saying I'm, I'm quite passionate about um, ensuring diversity, particularly in technology, because that's that's my predominant sphere of influence and making sure that women in particular as a, as a kind of easiest demographic to target because come on you can count them on 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 two hands and right half of them half of half of the people need to be female and half of people need to be male and if you're not even got that then you've got problems here right if you're 80 percent male if your leadership yeah. is all male you've got problems so how can i directly support that and target that well mentoring is one way how can i how can I, um, not not just in my own practice and my own recruitment and my own team, how can I work with women who are trying to work their way up the ladder and 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 um, help them with the benefit of my experience? But in return, I benefit from from their perspective and their. So I have a number of reverse mentoring uh, arrangements in place as well, where I have people um, who are not in executive positions who have got vastly different backgrounds who are able to mentor me and and help me see my problems with a different set of eyes as well. So growing up in, from an immigrant background, your, your parents were not born here. What type of expectations did they have for you? Where did they believe you should go forward in your life? So they, I think they, they definitely valued education and, you know, they weren't, uh, you kind of very stereotypical Jewish family saying you've got to be a doctor or a lawyer. I don't think they were too fussed about, specific professions because um again we, we, that my parents came from north africa rather than europe so you've got a slight a, a slightly different dynamic as well in the, in those immigrant communities um but they just you know they just wanted us to do well and, and um and and succeed and and not it's interesting actually and not not go through the the, the difficulties that they had growing up but actually that's part of what shapes you as well that mm that challenge and that difficulty, you know, you don't want everything to come easily. So I, I think they, I think they managed that um, balance really well of not having us feeling like we had everything we ever wanted, um, but also not having us feeling like we never had anything, you know, and trying trying to get that, that balance. But I, I think they just want us to be, so someone asked me uh, recently, you know, what, what, what do you want? What does your daughter want to be when she grows up? And I said, happy. Excellent. Right. I mean, they go, well, obviously you want to be happy, but you know, what does she want to be? I was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what she wants to study. It doesn't matter what, what job she does. I guarantee you, whatever job she does will change and then it will change again. Yeah. And eventually it will become something that doesn't even exist today. So <laughs> yeah. I don't need to worry about trying to predict the future. Just need to make sure that she is able to balance that own personal well-being and that happiness and that ability to make a living and um and and I was gonna say have a family, but actually do whatever it is that makes that person happy. And having a family family might be one of it, might be that, and it might not be. So what were your own expectations like when you were going through private school and growing up as a young man? How did you see yourself and what did you want to be? Um, my, my, I went to school in, so I didn't go to Harrow school, but I went to school on Harrow on the Hill. So it's, oh, right. there's, there are two schools on Harrow on the Hill. Um, and there's quite a difference between those two. Um, and one of them, everyone wears top hats and, and tails, <laughs> walks around the street. It's very odd. Um, but our one, 
actually, if I think through to my my senior year, my A level year, um, everyone in my classes were ethnic minorities, right? Every everyone I knew was first generation UK. Um, so so almost that was normal. That was the most normal thing. Every one of our parents didn't have English as their first language or even wow. potentially second language. So English is my mom's third language. So when we used to make fun of her accent, you know, we got to remember it's a third language that she didn't learn until she was in her 20s. So wow. respect for that. Um, and so what do I want to do? I mean, I didn't, I think I always, and I reflect on this a lot. I think I always thought I would run my own business. I always thought I'd be an entrepreneur, but I'm, I really like working for an organization. So I do run my own, not hustle side, side projects. Um, I've, I've been involved in running outdoor activity clubs or setting up my podcast or, you know, creating things and running things. And I, and I'm really happy doing that, but I really like being, um, part of something bigger and and part of an organization so I, th I think growing up i always assumed i would be an entrepreneur and i'd run my own business but never knew what that would be and uh, um as someone someone asked me last year while i was doing my course you know if you were to run your own business what would it be and i said i'm not going to answer that question because if i force myself to think about it and actually came up with something i guarantee you in a year i'll be doing it so I don't, right. <laughs> once I once I get that whatever it is in my mind, then I'll I'll go I'll start thinking about it more and more and start doing that whatever that thing is. So it hasn't kind of popped up yet, and and you know never say never. I'm I'm maybe about just over halfway through my my working career, working life. So there's still time. Excellent. There's still time indeed. And watching your parents work so hard to give you and your brother what you needed. And you yourself to have had the career you have, you've obviously worked very hard. What do you do to not suffer from burnout? I um, I, I work hard, but I, I enjoy working hard. Um, and um, you know, when when I go through periods where I, I was working eighteen hour days and writing business cases and and all sorts, I was enjoying it. And and yes, you get to a point. It's it's if you're not enjoying it, that's where the problem is. But but I think, again, referencing the pandemic for probably the 16th time, you know, I think we've all experienced what our boundaries of mental health are, what fatigue, what um, um, burnout can be like. And I've definitely had to be more mindful about that. Um, and in fact, I have to be doubly mindful. So I have to be mindful of myself uh, and my own well-being. But I also have to be mindful of my role modeling as a leader within an organization and what signal that sends to my team. So I, I started, um, so answering your question, I, you know, I, I, I started by going, I don't want to see emails out of hours, guys, right? We oh. based in the UK, we don't work internationally. And this particularly to the leadership team, right? If anyone in my leadership team sends emails out of hours, I stamp it out. We just don't need it. We can schedule it to send the following day because what happens when you receive an email you read it and what happens when you read it you think about it yeah and then you act on it right so stop creating those earworms or those brain you know hooks uh that, that mess up our evenings relaxation no don't schedule meetings over lunchtime because you need a break 
And then people say, oh, well, that's the only time it's available in your diary. I'm like, three a.m. is available, but you're not booking that. <laughs> you know, you've you got to have yeah. a break. you got to, you got to. So it's just little tiny things like that. But also it's five o'clock, you know, unless you've got a massive presentation the next day, shut it down, walk away. It will still be there tomorrow. And, and people worry about time management, right? Spoiler alert, you cannot manage time. Unless you're Doc Brown from Back to the Future, you cannot manage time. So time management is a complete misnomer. It's prioritization. That's all it is. It's just prioritization. Because you're going to get to the end of the day, the week, the month, the year, and you're not going to have done all the things that you wanted to do, right? Because you couldn't fold all of those things into the time available. But you chose what you did do. And more importantly, you chose what you didn't do. So why don't you get yeah. smart about it? Get, come, get that up front and kind of go, what am I not going to do today? And if I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to have it staring at me on a list all day long going, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I get to the end of the day and go, oh, I didn't get a chance to do that. I'll get it. I'll get to it tomorrow. So how do you prioritize what you actually work on? And, and if you're prioritizing your work, you're, you're prioritizing your non-work. You're prioritizing your downtime, whether it's, time with your family or cooking a meal or watching TV, you know, meditating, yoga, whatever, bike ride. How do you, how do you make sure you prioritize that stuff as much as you do this stuff? You know, if you wake up extra early, say you couldn't sleep, you wake up at 6am, do you go straight to your emails or do you go, Hey, you know what? That's two hours, maybe three hours. If you're working from home, what are you going to do with that time? How could you use that completely differently? That doesn't just get you into the, the cycle of looking at social media or mm. catching up on your emails or, you know, that kind of stuff. What, what's that thing that you've been meaning to read, but you haven't got around to doing Where's that journal that you wanted to write, whatever it might be. Have you been in a situation where you clearly have your ideas about time management and you had a boss who was very different in terms of what you think and how did you deal with that situation? Yeah, I, I'm, I've been very lucky that I've almost never really had a boss manage me. Okay. I've almost always throughout my career had a boss keep quite close for a few weeks and then go, you've clearly got this under control. You clearly can figure out what direction to take things maybe just keep me posted on what's happening. And, and I've just been very lucky. I, I think partly that's luck and partly that's, you know, character. Yeah. But, but I think if I can just extrapolate your question, what if you work in an organization that doesn't match your um, principles? Yeah. Yeah. And I had that. So I had that. Um, I was in a, uh, uh, another organization, a brilliant organization. I was just, I was in the worst part of the organization at the worst time in their history. And I was only there for three months because I came in and I went, there's something not quite right here. And there, it was, it was toxic. The, the, it was going through a lot of change and the, the management layers were very bullying in their culture. It was, it was a pretty horrible environment. And, uh, I just took the decision to just pack up and walk away without a job to go to. I didn't realize it was going to be a global recession about three months later, but uh, I was, I was very lucky that I found another job in about three days. I was, I was prepared oh. to be out of work for a year though. It was a conscious decision. That I'd be out of work for up to a year, but uh, within three days I found an incredible role. So, yeah, I mean, actually 
a bit like if you're in a meeting that you think you're not adding value or you're not benefiting from, you've got the power of your two feet. I yeah, just got up yeah. and walked away. Um, and that, and that ultimately is it. I won't, I won't just sit there and suffer it. And I am very conscious that that is my privilege speaking because I have the choice, right? I have the choice. I could, I could go into the market and find a job. IT uh, is a kind of very lucrative area at the moment. There's lots and lots of demand for resource and not everyone has that choice. So it doesn't really answer the question of, well, what do you do if you can't walk away and you've got a horrible boss? Uh, that's a, that's probably another chapter. <laughs> it certainly is. And lastly, if I were to want to purchase a Sondership t-shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where well, uh, <laughs> so uh, they are available on Sondership.com. Um, you know, I, actually, so I set up the website. The website uses, I wrote a whole blog about this. Um, I pretty much built everything in just a few days. Uh, the website took 15 seconds to build. No way. Is it is an absolutely amazing piece of software uh, that you just type in your your podcast name and boom, you've got a website and you can choose what you want to look at, make it look like. It's just absolutely uh, podpage.com. Um, and their customer support is brilliant. And actually, if you don't want to be super fancy, it's free as well. So uh, that's the bit I love about technology. They're going, well, hold on. A podcast already publishes to the world its cover art, its name, its title, a list of all of its episodes, where the files, it's already there. So that's all I need to build my website. Boom, there's your website. Uh, so I built the website. I built the store with merchandise on it. Um, I wrote a blog on there about, you know, the journey that I went through. It was just, it was just a bit of fun, really. It was just something to do last summer. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Excellent. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to check out Podpage. Brilliant. <laughs> Straight away, because that just sounds unbelievable. You use my affiliate link in the blog. <laughs> ah, I definitely will do. I definitely will do. But Danny, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing your podcast and speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Damien. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please do hit the subscribe button, leave a comment, share it with friends, or give us a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. And join us next week for another fabulous guest.